Well, several weeks ago, my wife began a series that she's calling The Names of God. Oh, man. Each message has filled our hearts with the loving, compassionate revelation of a good, good father. The first message that she preached was a message called, I am, I am, I am. When Moses stood in front of God and God was commissioning him to go to Egypt with the message, let my people go, Moses was thinking ahead of God. He said, but God, but what if they ask me, who sent me? And God said, tell them I am sent you. So what a wonderful message to really begin to unlock so many names of God that are just revealed under the scriptures. On the heels of that message came a message that showcased Yahweh Rapha, our healer, through a message that she preached called Dead Egyptians. Then came Yahweh Yira. This is just a test. And then my favorite, Yahweh Shama. The Lord is there. And then came Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner. And then last week, a message, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, or the Lord, my defender. These Old Testament expressions of the nature of God, I want to tell you something, have hijacked my heart like no other messages I have ever heard before in my life. I encourage you to listen to them again and again and again. And again, they will establish your heart in the message of unconditional love and grace. So often we think, oh, I just need a new message. I just need to hear something I've never heard before. I just need a new revelation of Jesus. No, <laughs> no, not really. You really don't. I mean, that's good if you get it. That's fine. But what we need is we need to hear the same things over by God over and over and over again. That's what establishes our hearts. It's hearing the same message over and over and over again. Amen? So because of this series that she's been preaching and what it's done to my own personal heart, it's given me the encouragement to preach my own little series that I'm calling the I Am's of Jesus. Did you know that there are eight I Am declarations by Jesus? They're all found in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the door. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, I am the true vine. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here's what he said before Abraham was, I am. So I want to minister for a little while this morning through the first message that I'm calling light of the world. And what I really want you to see through this message today is that light, dispels darkness and brings hope by setting us free from condemnation. Light, though, is like a double-edged sword. On one hand, light is very effective at stripping away religion. That's what it's done for me. But on the other hand, light is very effective at stirring up the religious. <laughs> the phrase light of the world appears just three times in the Bible, light of the world. Once in the Gospel of Matthew, twice in the Gospel of John. Every time it appears, Jesus himself said it. The opposite of light is darkness, or another way to say it, blindness. And the Bible has much to say about blindness. The word blind or some form of the word blind is mentioned about a hundred times throughout the Bible. Yet in all the mentions in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you will not find one account, you will not find one single documentation of a person in the Old Testament that was healed of blindness. 
So why do we not see the opening of eyes in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant? Friends, blindness was part of the curse. It would ultimately take Jesus dying on an old rugged cross, dying on a tree that would literally free us from that curse. The Bible says that Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus died for us. Jesus shed his blood for us. Jesus became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. But I want to take you back and I want to show you where this curse was injected into the old covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 20. The Bible says the Lord will send on you curses confusion and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to the sudden ruin watch this now because of the evil you have done in forsaking him i'm in verse 20 and verses 21 through 27 start talking about the manifestation of some of these curses but as we jump up to verse 28 right there it says the lord will afflict you with madness blindness and confusion of mind now here's the question the question becomes Why would a loving, gracious, compassionate God send blindness on a person in the former days? We wouldn't do that to our own children. I mean, we have children sometimes that have run amok, uh, that have kind of forsaken their homes and ran away and whatnot. We wouldn't put blindness on them. The reason that God afflicted the people with madness and confusion and blindness is because God was just simply being faithful to his covenant the covenant that he had with Israel. Their covenant was a covenant that called for blessings if you were good, and their covenant was a covenant that called for curses if you were bad. So these curses had an outward manifestation so you could actually see someone if they were under the curse. Was this covenant really the heart of God? Was this really God's best? Of course not. This covenant is the covenant that Israel demanded, and you can read all about that covenant in Exodus chapter 19. But in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, we find this wonderful truth. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Let me stop here for a second. This is the Apostle Paul that is writing this. Jesus has already been crucified. We are post-crucifixion and resurrection at this point in time. And the Apostle Paul says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And that still is true today. If you are relying on the law to save you, you are under that same curse. For he says, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now let me stop here for a second. Notice he says, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. From our doorstep here at Triumphant Grace Ministries to Los Angeles, California is 2,050 miles. That means if I got in my car today and I drove to Los Angeles, California, imagine I obeyed the law for 2,049 miles. I mean, I did the speed limit. I didn't break any laws. But on that last mile, I decided, you know what? I'm in a hurry to get to my destination. And I really step on the accelerator and I get pulled over by a police officer. And he says, I'm going to have to write you a citation. But I say, officer, I just came from Kenosha, Wisconsin. It's 2,050 miles east of here. And for 2,049 miles, I have obeyed the law perfectly. The officer would say that has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that you are a lawbreaker. So what the Apostle Paul is trying to drive home here, he says, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything. Do you see how complicated this was under the Old Covenant? You've got to do everything written in the book of the law. 
And then he just really kind of sums it up by saying, clearly, he says, really see this with me. No one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous shall live by faith. That word justified is the Greek word dakaio. It literally means to be declared righteous. So the apostle Paul is saying that nobody, no man, no woman, no boy, no girl, nobody is right in the eyes of God by observing the law. You have to be made righteous by faith alone. And then he says the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. And then I love how the 14th verse wraps it up. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And when Jesus was hanging on that cross, all those curses from the old covenant, all those curses that used to come up on man were put on Jesus Christ. You've got to see that in your mind's eye. You've got to see that with your heart, that all your curses were put on Christ. There is no curse for the believer, okay? We are under grace. Jesus came to take away our curse of blindness physically. He came to take away our curse of blindness emotionally. He came to take away our curse of blindness doctrinally. Now, you don't hear that preached too often. And he certainly came to take away our curse of blindness spiritually so that we could be made right with God. In the Gospel of Luke, chapters 3 and 4, we read of the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. Friends, unlike the presidential inauguration that's going to be coming up in January, Jesus' inauguration did not come with fanfare, it did not come with teleprompters, it did not come with rehearsed speeches, and it did not come with confetti. It came at a dirty river, a demonic devil, and a dry desert. But Jesus needed just one thing. You know, all we need is one thing. That's all Jesus needed to know is that, Father, I am well-pleasing to you. That's all you really need to know, that you are always well-pleasing to the Father. Your performance might not be spot on, but I want to tell you something. God looks beyond performance. He'll correct that. He'll get that stuff out of you. How will he do that? He doesn't take us out behind the woodshed and beat us with a belt. He does it by his word, by giving you a revelation to your heart. That's how God corrects us. He corrects us by his word. So in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 23, we see this encounter at the Jordan River. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him and a voice from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear the Father saying that over you today. You are my beloved Son. I'm well pleased with you today. You are my beloved daughter. I'm well pleased with you today. You are my beloved Son. I'm always pleased with you. And I love what the next part of the scripture says. It says, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began to preach. Why would you throw that in there? I mean, really? (laughs) Jesus was about 30 because the number 30 always represents in the Bible the right moment of time. So Jesus wasn't a day early. He wasn't a day late. He was right on time. He was listening to his father. Immediately following the baptism in the Jordan River, though, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the desert, the Bible says, to be tempted of the devil for 40 days. The Bible tells us that Jesus ate nothing during those 40 days. He ate no food. During that time, the devil relentlessly assailed Jesus. Friends, at the end of those 40 days, the light of the world was still shining, but darkness had been rebuked and had to leave. Let me summarize what I just said here. Jesus grew up in a carpenter's shop. 
Jesus worked with his daddy and learned his daddy's trade. I don't know what kind of stuff they made, knickknacks for the lawn, or, uh, you know, I don't know what they made, doors for your house, I don't know. But I know his daddy was a carpenter, and typically the sons would take on the trades of their daddy. So for those first years, all those years, up to 30 years of age, Jesus was just working and serving in a carpenter shop. Wasn't doing miracles, wasn't opening blind eyes, just serving faithfully with his father. But then he heard his father from heaven say, son, it's time. It's time to let that light go before the whole world. It's time to show the light of the world to the whole world. And he stepped out and was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. He went into that 40-day fast, but this is what got my attention. Once the fast ended, Jesus immediately made the journey back to his hometown of Nazareth. And it says, on the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and a scroll was handed to him to read. I don't know if Jesus walked into town on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, but when he got there, he didn't miss church when the Sabbath rolled around. He went right to the synagogue. The Bible says, as was his custom. I don't know if he knew they were going to hand him a scroll that day. Maybe the father told him, but suddenly out of all the dozens and dozens of suits that were in there that day, the Pharisees, all the people that were in there, suddenly they looked at Jesus and they handed him the scroll to read. That was a real honor for a scroll to be handed to you. And Jesus opened the scroll, the Bible says, and he began to read the words that were penned by Isaiah the prophet from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Now I'm going to show you how it shows up in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2, but then I'm going to show you how it was recorded, how Jesus read it. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Wow! And then this is the way it's recorded in the book of Luke. He wrote in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, just exactly the way Isaiah said it. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, exactly the way Isaiah said it. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives or bind up the brokenhearted, just like Isaiah said it. And he said to set at liberty those who are oppressed, like Isaiah said it, and to proclaim the year of the Lord. He was quoting Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, but in the middle of what he said there, he sandwiched in the middle of there, he said, recovering of sight to the blind. Now, I don't know about you, but this had not been done before. Nobody had been healed of blindness. So for Jesus to say, and recovering of sight to the blind, it was a radical statement. He was showing I'm radically different than the prophet Isaiah. He said, I'm going to insert that right in there. Now, this is what's really cool about this. As we look at the next verse, Luke chapter 4, verse 20 through 22. Then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The Bible says the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, watch what it says. All spoke well of him. Who's all? That's the Pharisees there. It's the religious leaders. All spoke well of him and were amazed. They were amazed at his teaching and the gracious words that came from his lips. That's what it says. It would appear to me that the light of the world just hit a grand slam at his first bat. You know how rare that is? 
As long as they've been keeping records for baseball, which goes back to the 1800s, there's only 29 men that have hit a grand slam at their first bat out of all the millions and millions and millions of guys. And there's only four out of the 29 that hit it on the first pitch. It's a rare thing, but Jesus got up there and they spoke well of him. They were amazed at his teaching. They marveled at him and they spoke good things about him. So he went to church that day. He was asked to be the guest preacher. Everyone praised his sermon, and everyone was amazed. Friends, in the eyes of the Pharisees, Jesus is about to go from a hero to a zero in short order. I want you to see their change of heart that happened just six verses later. We are in verse 22 right now, so we're going to be skipping up to verse 28, okay? Now, they've just praised him and all this stuff. Now, watch what happens. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove Jesus out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. What happened? The Pharisees went from let's kiss him to let's kill him. I'll tell you what happened. The evidence is found in the five missing verses that we skipped over. It's in those five verses that I believe Jesus pulled the grace card. Friends, think it not strange when your own family and your friends do not agree with the message of the finished work of grace. Think it not strange that they cannot see the light of the world the way you and I see him. Do you want to know what's worse than being thrown off a cliff? Well, today they don't even say thrown off a cliff. They say thrown under the bus today. But do you want to know what's worse than that? I'm going to tell you what's worse than that, being shunned. There are people that wish they could be thrown off a cliff, but yet they're just shunned by their family. They're shunned by people that used to be friends with them because of this message. And you can see how quickly it happened to Jesus too, can't you? He's our example. It happened to him, buddy. It's going to happen to you. Not being able to have spiritual conversation with the people you love most because a family member or a friend thinks you might warp their psyche of their doctrine with your message of grace is a hard thing. I've seen it happen where adult children have told their own parents, never again talk to your grandchildren. Don't talk to them again about spiritual things. You know why? Because their message of God's unconditional love and His great grace is radically different than mainstream Christianity. You see, it went over the church's head, I believe, the Pharisees' heads when Jesus inserted the recovering of sight to the blind. How do I know that? Because the Bible says He'd already delivered that and they spoke well of Him and they were amazed. So He put that in there. They probably just got a little confused. I don't know what He's getting at exactly here. But they still spoke well of Him. So what's in those five verses that I skipped over that made the religious Pharisees so angry? Luke chapter 4, verses 23 through 27. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Capernaum. I believe this was the kindling on the fire, but I don't believe it was the log. I think this is what got the fire started. I couldn't help but think when I was reading this last night, Jesus, why didn't you just stop when you were ahead? It seemed like, you know, they all loved you and they all praised you. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. I don't care who loves me and who praises me. I'm going to preach the word of God. I'm going to preach the message of grace. I don't care. It doesn't matter. So he said, truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Now, this is, I believe, what really got them. Jesus said, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel. Notice how he picked the name Israel, which is where they're from. 
There were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Now watch this. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. That was the log on the fire. You see, if anybody deserved to be fed during the famine, surely it's the one who's keeping all the law. Surely it's the one that's doing everything right. has got his suit all pressed up and stuff like that. Surely it's the one who's fasting, putting ashes on his head two or three days a week and standing on the marketplace corner. But God had the audacity, if you will, to raise up a prophet by the name of Elijah and send him to Zarephath. I mean, where is Zarephath? I mean, send him to Zarephath and then send him to a woman. You know, men looked at women as property back then. You sent him to a woman who didn't deserve anything? She didn't even ask you to come and you're going to go there. You know, you can just see that this is turning their hearts when Jesus is saying all this. And Jesus knew this would be their response. He pulled the grace card, didn't he? He sure did. And then he said, and there were many in Israel. Notice he said Israel again. He said there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha. Elisha was the successor of Elijah. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. The Syrians were enemies of Israel. And for you to stand up and say, wait a minute now, you mean Elisha was raised up to go heal a man of leprosy and he didn't come to Israel to do it? Do you see how this makes religious people mad? Because they think about, this is what I deserve. The person who deserved it least, this guy, Naaman. Those are the missing five verses. Jesus was doing fine until he inserted all that grace. And they just couldn't agree with that. And that's why they took him out and wanted, I mean, listen. (laughs) The Pharisees marveled when they heard Jesus read. But when he began telling them what true grace looks like, the Bible says those religious leaders were filled with wrath and they tried to kill Jesus right after church. Isn't that crazy? The Pharisees had the light of the world standing right in front of them, and they could not see. The light of the world was standing right in front of them, and they could not see. They would not see. Oh, this week I was reminded when I went to get in the refrigerator and opened the refrigerator one day, there's a magnet hanging on our refrigerator. It's about three by three like this, and it's got a man standing there, and his wife is with him. They're standing in front of the refrigerator. And the refrigerator door is open and the lady's down in front of the refrigerator door. She's looking up at her husband and you can see the words. It's like, I told you it was here, honey. And right across the top of it, it says, male refrigerator blindness claims another victim. I can identify with that. Anybody can identify with that? I'm not kidding you. Over the years I've been married to Valerie, there's been times I say, honey, did you get some ketchup when you went shopping? Yeah, it's right there in the door. No, 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 it's not in the door, honey. No, it's right there. No, it's not in the door. I'm looking right in the door. No, it's not here, honey. No, I'm looking at all three shelves. Nope, 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 no ketchup. And just to have my wife walk over and say, well, right there it is. If I would leave the room, I would be sure that she planted that while I was gone. The light of the world is standing right in front of the Pharisees and they cannot see him. Wow! If you were to hand a sphere-shaped object, in other words, a round object, like a ball or a globe or something like that, if you were to hand an object like that to a man who's never seen the light of the world, to a man who has never seen the light of day, to a man that has been born blind from birth, 
he would be easily by touch alone to be able to tell you the shape of that object. Easily. He'd just say, that's round. Take that away from him, put it on the table, give him something triangular shape, and say, what, what shape is that? He put his hands on it, he'd say, well, that's triangular shape. By touch alone. Easily identify that. Give him something square, a cube or something like that. He'd say, well, that's square. But now watch this. Take those three objects, put them on a table right in front of the blind man, and then stand in front of him and command his eyes to be opened. When his eyes opened and he was looking at those three objects, if you looked at him and said, now which one of those objects is triangular in shape? Do you know he would not be able to tell you which one is triangle? You know why? Because he has no association between sight and touch. It's a trained response through repetition going over and over. That's what the message of grace does. It just keeps retraining your heart because it was shaped a certain way through doctrinal beliefs and teachings and whatnot. But if you handed him the triangular-shaped object and said, here, hold that for a second, he put his hands on it and he'd go, wow, that's what a triangle looks like. That's really, really cool. That's really, really awesome. Why would this happen like this? Again, his only association is by touch alone, sight unknown. He cannot relate sight with touch. Those two realms, those two senses have not married themselves together. They don't communicate to one another. Friends, that is precisely what happened to me a few years ago when my father began to pull back the ugly shades of religion and reveal to me the finished work of grace. It was foreign at first, but yet very compelling. It went against that which my teachers had taught me. I wasn't sure what I was seeing at first, but I desired to apprehend this grace. Not by touch, not by sight, but by faith alone. Over the months as the message of grace began to drip in my heart, the Bible became a living word. Sin consciousness was replaced with sun consciousness. I no longer looked at myself in the mirror. I started looking for the darling of heaven. The Bible was no longer a history book. I could hold up my Jesus and I could say, Behold, the light of the world! For the first time in my life, I could truly sing the song, I see grace sealed by your sacrifice. I see love reaching for me. Precious blood washes and sanctifies, healing flows, setting me free. I see grace, I see grace, I see grace. Bearer of sin, afflicted and tried, you paid redemption's price. Bearing my curse, what curse did he bear? The curse of blindness. Whether it's spiritual or physical or emotional or doctrinal, he bore that curse on a tree. Bearing my curse, setting me on high, your death has brought me life. I see you pierced, wounded for me, as I look to the cross. I see, I see grace. With every page I turned in the Bible, I could see grace and I could see love reaching for me through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. I no longer had to look in the mirror. I could look to the cross. Why do I want to look at me when I can look to Jesus, right? Friends, the illustration I just gave you about the blind man, he was seeing but not perceiving, just like the Pharisees. They were seeing physically, but they were not perceiving spiritual truths. Understanding that analogy, if you will, will help us from becoming critical towards other ministries or other precious people of God that have not got the revelation. Don't be critical. At first, when I began to get the message of grace, I found myself a little more critical. Like, why doesn't everybody see this? Why doesn't everybody see this, God? And I found myself a little more critical. God's gotten that criticalness out of me. He said, you don't need to be critical about that. He's given us eyes to see the light of the world and the finished work of grace. 
I heard a preacher one time, he loves grace so much, he literally said, I'm a gracist. That's, that's what he said. That's what he said. Friend, I want to tell you something, friends. I'd rather be a gracist than a racist, wouldn't you? You know, somebody said there are many races. No, there's one race. It's the human race. That's all there is. I despise racism. Racism is taught, and what is taught can be untaught, but it takes the revelation of grace to unteach all that infrastructure that's been set up in our lives. If you were the homeliest man or woman on the planet Earth, and when he was, when he was communicating that to me, I googled homeliest man, and man, I'm telling you, there are some homely people out there, man. I started to bring some pictures and show you, man. You've been like, what? Here's the amazing thing about homeliness. Unless you've got something protruding off your face, you can't feel homeliness. I thought the Holy Spirit say, if you were the homeliest man on earth, but you had been blind from birth, and then all of a sudden, Jesus commanded sight to your eyes, and you could open them for the first time. If you were to look in a mirror, you would think you were absolutely adorable. You would think you're beautiful. You know, I'm going to tell you something. You have to be told you're ugly to believe it. You have to compare yourself to someone else. You have to compare it to something else. We need to look into the mirror of the Word. What does Jesus say about us? He says, you're beautiful. Look at Song of Solomon. He kept telling the bride over and over, you're beautiful. She said, I'm dark. He said, no, you're beautiful. I'm afflicted. No, you're beautiful. You have to be told that you're ugly. You have to be told that you're not status quo. You have to be told that you don't measure up. I don't listen to what the world's saying. I listen to what my Jesus is saying. Hallelujah. You have to be told you're ugly by the world, the flesh, or the devil in order to believe that. Satan is continuously trying to tell us that we are ugly. He's trying to tell us that we're guilty. He's trying to tell us that we're shameful. Friends, grace is the breastplate of righteousness. When you put that on, I'm going to tell you something, you'll find nothing can penetrate that. Amen. A few years ago, I began to see that extravagant love of God, His outrageous generosity and His unconditional grace. I began to see that they were totally incompatible with the software religion I had been programmed with. And as I began to cry out to the Lord for eyes to see this grace, I discovered that it was a prayer that He was delighted to answer. He said, that'll be fine, son. I'll be happy to, to answer that prayer. And I began to see the light of the world through the lens of grace, and it thrilled my soul. I want to show you the narrative where Jesus declared, at least one of the narratives where Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world. is found in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him. Now listen to me carefully. This was the habit of Jesus. He came early in the morning, and the Bible even says he sat down. He and he sat down and taught them. You know, anytime a person sits down, it means you're going to be there a little while. You're just going to be there a little while. He would teach all day long. You see, it was just the opposite when he was in the synagogue. Remember, he was already seated, and then he stood up to read the scroll. He's going to be there a little while. He cares about these precious people. He's going to really pour into their lives. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him. You know this was a crowd now, right? All the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had sat her in the midst, you've got to see this now. They bring this woman that they said they caught in adultery, and they bring her to church. Not to get saved, not to get healed, not to get a demon cast out, 
But they brought her to church and interrupted Jesus' meeting and set her right in the midst. You know, sometimes I read stuff in the Bible and I'm like, really? I mean, there's nobody in Hollywood that can make this kind of stuff up. Really? This really happened. It happened exactly the way it's recorded in the Bible. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. In other words, we drug her right out of the bed and we brought her to you. I'll bet you could have heard a pin drop. They knew their Bible because they looked at Jesus and they said, let us just kind of jumpstart you here in the right direction, Jesus. Let's tell you what Moses commanded. And they said this, now Moses in the law commanded us. We got to do what Moses said. Now he commanded us, Jesus. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stone, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Let me tell you what I felt the Lord say to me last night. You see, what the Pharisees were, were interested in was not this woman's deliverance, not her well-being. They weren't just interested in just stoning her either because you usually got stoned outside the city gate. You know, they want to get blood all over their streets. You know, this is the marketplace. You know, we, we want to clean it up too after we kill you. We don't walk in your blood all day long. So usually they take you outside of the city gate, stone you, and let the vultures get you. So the fact that they brought her into where Jesus was at, I'll tell you what they were interested in that day. They were interested actually in two stonings, her and Jesus. You know why? <laughs> Let me tell you. Back to verse 1, all the people came unto him. They didn't like that. You stole away our church. We were really important until you got here. People were coming to us. Now they're coming to you. They came to us for a 45-minute service. Now they're sitting there all day long. That really bugs me, Jesus. They didn't want to tell them that, but I'll tell you what, that was what was on their heart. I assure you that's what was on their heart. See, they figured they had the perfect plan. They had Jesus trapped. Because they said, now Moses' law commanded that we stone a woman that's caught in adultery. But what do you say? If Jesus says, well, go ahead and stone her, guess what? Jesus is going to lose his church. If Jesus says, don't stone her, they'll accuse him of blasphemy and not obeying the law of Moses. Now, either way, he's lost his church. Are you getting that picture? That's what's going on here. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Let me camp here for just a second because this is really important. He said to the Pharisees, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Our English word sin comes up in the New Testament if you look at some version of it, sin, sins, sinning, sinful, sinner, sinners, sinned, it comes up 264 times. And Jesus says, he that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Now here's the interesting thing. I know I've plowed this ground before, but it's worth hearing. When you see this word sin, it's usually a noun or it's a verb. A noun speaks of the person, a verb speaks of the action. So you ask yourself, well, which one is this? Is it talking about he that's without sin as a noun or is it a verb? That's the beauty of Jesus. 
That's how clever Jesus was. That's how wise Jesus was. He used a word behind that word sin that's an adjective, and it's the only time in the whole Bible it's used this one time. It's an adjective. An adjective describes the virtue of something. And he said, he that is without sin casts the first stone. That Greek word behind this word sin is the Greek word amartetos. Amartetos. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. It means of one who has not sinned. It literally in the Strong's Concordance says of one who cannot sin. So when Jesus looked at me, he said, okay, you know what? Go ahead and kill her. Go ahead and stone her. But I want the guy to start with the one who has never sinned and who cannot sin. So I want you to look ahead in your future. If there's going to ever come a time where you figure you've got beyond all sin, he said, you're the one who gets to throw the first rock. And the Bible says they all began to drop their rocks from the oldest to the youngest. And I believe that really is simply is the one who had the most teaching, the one who had the most knowledge, because the young ones only followed what they saw the older ones do. That's just as simple as you can be with that right there. The wonderful message of grace is that Jesus has sealed believers in a permanent state of amartetos, so that we cannot sin out of our spirits. We sing that song, I See Grace, sealed by his sacrifice. Jesus has sealed us in a permanent state of amartetos, which means we cannot sin out of our spirit, the part that really counts. Sin in your soul, sin in your body will wreck your life, wreck your wife, wreck everything, but it will not wreck heaven. Okay? You cannot sin out of your spirit because we've been sealed. Okay? You say, man, Mark, I don't know, you're, what do you mean you cannot sin? You're going really out there on a limb. First John chapter 3, verse 9. Whoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin. He said he cannot sin because he is born of God. Does that give you liberty? Does that open your blind eyes? Does that get you out of the prison that Satan wants to put you in? Does that get you out of his little chatterbox in your ear? You cannot sin in your spirit because Amartetos has sealed you with his spirit. Next verse. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. I love this now. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? In other words, he was just saying, where are the people that brought you here? Where are the ones that accused you? Hath no man condemned you? She said, No man, Lord. No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And again, he was just saying, Listen, you can leave your life of sin. He was saying, I'm empowering you with the gift of no condemnation, the gift of grace, the gift of my unconditional love. And he said, that will empower you to be able to go and sin no more. Next verse. Then spake Jesus again unto them. Here it is. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am. Remember, that's the name of God. I am. I wanted to put a hyphen in there. In fact, I had it in there originally. I took it back out. I am. He said, the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Friends, like a laser beam in the hands of a skilled surgeon, 
Jesus' light just cut away this woman's guilt, her shame, her fear, her judgment, her accusers, her condemnations. Friends, let me sum up this message by saying this. I would say to you, run. Run from the law. Run from performance-based Christianity. Run from performance-based identity. Run from those who wish to accuse you and condemn you. Run into the arms of the one that has sealed you with this sacrifice. Run into the arms of the one whose love is reaching for you. Run into the one whose precious blood washed and sanctified you. Run to the one who bore your sins on a tree. Run to the one whose blood purchased you. Run to the one who bore your curse and set you on high. Run to the one whose death has brought you life. Run! Run! Run to Jesus, the light of the world. I want to say this because I feel prompted by the Holy Spirit. If you have never asked Jesus to come into your heart, this would be the perfect time to run to Him. If you've never asked Jesus to actually come into your heart, it's so simple. You say, Father, I come before you today and Daddy, I thank you for grace. I thank you for Jesus whose arms say, Come, come, come. So Daddy, today I leave my sin at the base of the cross and I pick up righteousness from Jesus himself. I want to thank you, Father, that I'm sealed with the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ. And I want to thank you. You put me in a state that safeguards me from our enemy. You put me in a state of amartetos, a place where I can no longer sin out of my spirit. I ask Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. And Father, we just thank you this morning for your great grace, your great love for us. We just rejoice, Father. We get to cast all of our care upon you for you care for us. And Daddy, once we cast it upon you, we just thank you that we don't have to take our cares back. The light of the world, his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, and he carries our cares for us. The Bible says, Surely he hath borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon him, and with his stripes I am healed. In Jesus' name, amen.